Well, uh, an appropriate fanfare to start the look at our final sermon on the book of Hebrews. So would you turn to Hebrews chapter 13? We'll look at verses 18 through 19. I'm going to leave it a mystery as to what book we will start on after family camp, but uh, we'll be a lot of us up at family camp next week. Don't forget, we will be here uh, worshiping together as well, a smaller group of us here next Sunday. So we finish the book of Hebrews. We look at Hebrews chapter 13, starting with verse 18. Would you stand as we read God's holy word? Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably, but I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these two verses, help us not to be set off by the, or put off by the fact that this is a very short passage. It seems nothing overly complicated in terms of theological terms or expressions. And it might be quick to just pass by, and like so often when people ask us to pray for them, uh, we would just look past these two verses, but Lord, help us to settle down for a moment today here and hear what your word has to say to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I, as I look at these two verses, and especially as I think about how often people in my life have said, pray for me, I think it's natural that two questions come out of these verses. The first one is, what should we pray for? When somebody asks us to pray for them, what is this author here expecting exactly? Is there, a, is there a type of content? Are we just praying for their growth in God? Are we just praying for being able to see them for good health? What, what are we praying for? How often are we praying for them? And why does the author particularly urge the Hebrews to pray for his restoration and thus imply that their prayer, their prayer might lead to his being restored to them sooner? So I want to answer those two questions today. I think it'll help us as we think about our own prayer lives. And, and to answer these two questions, I'm going to pull not only from this, but also from two other primary passages. You can be thinking about it ahead of time. One is 1 Timothy 2. And the other is Acts chapter 12. And so we're going to look at that first question. What should we be praying for? How often? And this is maybe best called intercessory prayer when somebody asks us to pray on their behalf, pray for them. And I wonder how many of you, if exhorted, if you had been a reader of, of Hebrews 13, would, would you know what to pray when you heard that exhortation, that request? pray for us. Paul in Romans 8.26 says, we do not know what we should pray for as we ought to pray. Maybe that doesn't seem overly complimentary by Paul, but the fact is that we often don't know what to pray for. And Paul even calls that a lack of, under, that lack of understanding. He calls it a weakness there, Romans 8. But weakness is not a sin. It's just a product of of sometimes a lack of understanding and finite uh, abilities on us as human beings. And I'll let you in on a secret. Even the greatest of saints have, have had that weakness. 
We see it in the Scriptures. For example, with Job, we see it with Job. He had the testimony that he was a righteous man, as God said. Job 1.8 says that God said, Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. Can you imagine that kind of complimentary word by God about you? There's no man on earth like him. He is blameless, upright, a man who fears God, shuns evil. High compliment, of course, and yet because of the things that happened to him, Job becomes confused. He didn't know that he was suffering for the reasons that we kind of have the backstory for. His friends thought they knew why he was suffering. And though they would not have had any difficulty praying, they said, at least not difficulty praying for Job and for his sinfulness, they had it all figured out. It was Job's fault. Of course, God was was delivering justice to a, a sinful man. And Job had no answers himself. And so in Job chapter 7, he says, Why, God, have you targeted me? Why am I on your radar? Why am I the lucky one? How have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins and, and afflict that person instead of me? Even Elijah, the great prophet, after having stood courageously against the prophets of Baal, and despite God's tremendous victory right on Mount Carmel, he, hearing Queen Jezebel's plans to take his life, suddenly is fearful. And he runs off. And he prays. And what does he pray? It's a really righteous prayer if you get a chance to remember and read it. It's this, God, kill me now. God, kill me now. That's what he says in 1 Kings 19. I've had enough. I'm no better than my ancestors. I want to die. And it's true, he wasn't any better than his ancestors, but he was like Job and like so many others, confused. And God had more to do for him. And so I think Job teaches us that a man can be righteous and still not always know what to pray, even as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Elijah teaches us that you can be courageous in one moment and yet fall victim to doubt. You'll be struck by a crisis that you don't know how to handle and suddenly you begin to pray out of doubt and self-pity. And so there's no wonder that we have trouble praying, knowing what to pray. And that our prayers often are so focused upon getting ourselves out of uncomfortable situations. In fact, most of our time spent in prayer, if we, if we look back, recorded what we prayed for the last month, and then and let it out, how much of that would be a laundry list of things, of our concerns, of our perceived needs, of our desires? Even worse, some of us sometimes have ulterior motives like, the Pharisee who stood on the street corner praying loudly to impress others with our theological prayers. Or perhaps more nobly, we want to teach others to pray. Or perhaps we just we feel sorry for ourselves a lot and we pray. Maybe I'm the only one that suffers from those types of challenges, but I do know that our focus should be intensely and directly focused upon the Lord's kingdom, his purposes, and his people. It's not to say, friends, because I don't want you to to take this out of that comment, it's not to say that God doesn't want you to come to him and share your concerns. 
We read the Psalms and see that the psalmist frequently felt dry in the soul, right? And so they went to God and said, I feel dry in my soul. My bones are drying up and, and I have no passion, Lord. Help me to remember your throne. Right? There, we see that. And so I'm not talking about that type of prayer today because that's not what's being brought up in Hebrews chapter 13. What I'm talking about is somebody says, pray for us. Pray for me. What do we do? An intercessory prayer. And actually, you might be surprised, that's the more common example of prayer in the Scriptures. So turn with me to first chapter, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And let's see what t- Paul says to Timothy here in this passage. He says, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful, peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, at the end of the previous chapter in 1 Timothy 1, Paul had exhorted Timothy to stand firm and to fight the good fight. That's what he tells him. And then in chapter 2, which starts with therefore, this is a conclusion to him saying, so Timothy, stand, be faithful, fight the good fight, and first of all, like top importance, top priority is what? Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks given for all men which means everyone. And the point here is is not that every Christian is commanded to pray for every individual person in the world. That would be impractical and impossible. But instead, Paul is talking about all kinds of people. As a church made up of both Jew and Gentile, Paul tells Timothy, and, and really Timothy is at the Ephesian church, he tells him, don't limit your prayers. Prayer's not elitist, it's not nationalistic, it's not racist, it's not selective practice. There is no category of person you should not be praying for, including your civil leaders, including the authorities, the kings, the governors, the presidents, the council members who are in authority over you. Why? So that you may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So we are to pray for the President of the United States, regardless of what we think of his politics and and policies, and not just for him, but also for the Vice President, the Governor, our Senators, for all of our leaders. We, We should be praying for leaders of other countries, like North Korea and Iran and Afghanistan. Are you praying for those men and women, or are you just watching the news and getting frustrated and angry with them? One goal of our praying is peace in the midst of persecution. We pray with the hope that others will promote peace and consequently enable the church to flourish. And those in authority, that's why those are singled out out of all men. He's not saying all leaders. He's saying all men, but especially civil leaders, because they in particular can provide this umbrella of peace and 
security for the church to thrive and proclaim the gospel freely. Of course, don't think that because you are praying to live peaceable and godly lives that God's going to ignore an oppressive government. Just because you pray for the president doesn't mean that that the president isn't going to face the consequences of his life and his policies. Governments have risen and fallen, and those opposed to God have often fallen the hardest. And Psalm 2 tells us very clearly, God warning the nations, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun, lest you kindle the wrath of God against you. So there is a clear warning, and God speaks to civil leaders, but he tells us, pray for them. But I hope in that 1 Timothy 2 passage that you saw an even more ultimate goal than just to live a peaceful and godly life. God uses the proclamation and living out of the gospel to save men and women. This is very important to us because we often interpret the peaceful and godly life as, Lord, please just let me be able to worship in freedom in security, in these four walls, let me be able to live my Christian life with my family, kind of in anonymity with nobody knowing that I exist. That's not what this is about. A peaceable and godly life is so that I may live it out so that God's purposes through me may change the world. It's a very outward-focused, not inward-focused exhortation by Paul to Timothy. And so it says there, our minds are to be set upon kingdom work. We desire and pray for the ability to live a peaceful and godly life so that we may proclaim the gospel to the nations. That is the heart of intercessory prayer. That God's plan and purpose will be extended throughout the world and we will be effective instruments for Him. So, when the author of Hebrews 13 says, pray for us. This is a significant part of what he's asking. And it's why partially he says, I'm confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. What he is saying is, we have the right priorities. They, kind of, they align with 1 Timothy 2. We want to live honorable, godly, peaceable lives, but so that the kingdom of God will go forth in our proclamation of the gospel and our living out of our testimony. So pray for that. For us. In another passage, 2 Thessalonians 1.11, Paul gives some more direction with regard to intercessory prayer. He says, Therefore we always pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness in the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you boil that down, what is he praying for? He's praying for worthiness of, of our calling, fulfillment in what we are doing, i.e. joy and effective service that God would use us for the kingdom. And, and so in that regard, Paul is a good example f- for me. He shows me how I should intercede and pray for, for you. I should be praying that you would be found worthy of God's calling in your life, that you would find joy in that process, and that you would be an effective instrument for his kingdom. 
But that prayer should not be mine alone. It should also form the foundation for all of what you pray for others. When someone asks you, pray for me, pray that they would lead a quiet and peaceful life. Pray that the gospel would go out through them. Pray that they would be worthy of their calling. Pray that they would be joyful in all things and that they would become effective instruments for the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying in that, in that Thessalonians passage, he says, I pray these things that the name of the Lord Jesus might be glorified. And so we come to the motive of not only our prayer for others, but really our prayer for ourselves, which is that the name of Jesus is glorified in all things. Really, that's why you say in Jesus' name, amen, at the end. It's not to provide a conclusion to your prayer. It's not the magic formulaic ending of, I'm done, God, in Jesus' name, amen. No, it is saying, may Jesus' name be glorified. That is your statement that this is my motive in praying, at least it should be. And Jesus is most glorified when the things that God plans to do and will do are accomplished. And you may find that many of the things that you've been praying for are not what the thought of, this is for Jesus' name to be glorified. This is for me to be comfortable. This isn't for Jesus' name to be glorified. I didn't even think about Jesus' name being glorified. What I thought about was, I have this job interview tomorrow and I don't know what to do, right? Again, God loves to have his people come to him, but so often he wants us to come to him so that we kind of get our orientation and focus readjusted so that we remember, ah, life is about God. Even the psalmist, I said earlier, you know how many frequent examples we have that the psalmist going and saying, I'm all dried up, I don't understand, why is this happening to me? Why I'm like Job, or I'm like Elijah, and what's happening? And then the psalmist says in the middle of the psalm, and then I went to God's holy temple, and what? And I remembered, you are God. What does God tell Job? Where were you when this happened? He says, I was there at the foundation of the world. What is God telling Job? I am God. And then Job ultimately says, well, I repent in ash of sackcloth. You're right. You are God. And even though you slay me, yet I will praise you. What an orientation shift, right? Suddenly. Why am I, my, why am I your target, God, to though you slay me, yet I'm going to praise you? That's so often the purpose of our prayers individually to God, God wanting to reorient our perspective and remind us of of what's most important, Jesus' name being glorified, God's kingdom going out, and us being effective instruments in that. And that is really what is to be your prayers for other people. That's what intercessory prayer is about. How often are we supposed to pray? For that, turn for a moment to Acts chapter 12. Verse 4 says that Peter was guarded, it says, by four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Four squads of soldiers for one man. Hard to imagine Peter as dangerous as that to warrant that kind of, of guarding. But you know, here he is, he's chained to two guards. One on his left, the other on his right, and the others are keeping watch. Yeah, I can imagine they're all circling around. Are his followers going to come and rescue him? Is, is something going to happen? 
If we remember that Peter was regarded as one of the pillars of the church at Jerusalem, perhaps we can understand Herod's anticipation that people might try to rescue him. And what's Peter's reaction? Well, a little bit later in his life, when he writes his first letter to the church, Peter writes this to the Christians. He says, cast all your cares upon God, for he cares for you. Cast all your cares upon God, for he cares for you. Well, Peter practices that in this moment in Acts chapter 12, because while he's in prison on what is to be his last night, Peter was sleeping. You thought I was going to say Peter was praying. And I don't want you to miss this point because I see this example modeled in many of the great men and women of Scripture. Peter gives his cares over to the Lord and he is at peace so much so that he goes to sleep. And while he slept, the church prayed for Peter. Verse 5 says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And I think we can learn from this example. Verse 5 says, the church's prayer was constant. That word translated constant comes from a word that means to stretch or to strain. There There was an agonizing for it. There was a burden that the church felt for Peter, even while Peter, content that he is in the plan and purpose of God is able to sleep. The people straining in prayer are agonizing in their pleas to God. And if Herod had known that they were praying that way while Peter is chained between two guards, surrounded ultimately by four squads, he would have been laughing. What fools to think that they could pray to their God and save Peter. The sword had fallen already on some of the disciples. It would fall again. Peter, though, is not praying on his own defense. He is not praying for his own release. And I think that's an important thing that God wants us to take with regard to prayer. How much in our difficult situations are we casting our cares upon God, secure in God's love for us, in the belief in His sovereign plan and action, so much so that we can sleep. And we can sleep restfully. And how much, on the other side, are we as a church going, this blessed saint is casting his or her cares upon God, And he or she is able to sleep in the midst of this trial that they are facing. Health, difficult decisions, persecution, whatever, tragedy. And we feel the burden for them and are agonizing in our prayers, lifting them up, this person up to the Lord. I think it's the reverse situation so often in our prayers. We rarely pray for others, but we sure pray over our anxieties, don't we? Even in the model prayer given by Jesus, the focus on ourselves is relatively brief. That God would give us the things we need to survive. Give us this day our daily bread. And that He would strengthen us in the midst of temptation for giving our sins. 
And the rest of the prayer is about God's kingdom and His glory. And I wonder how our prayers would change if we, if we did actually pray less for ourselves and more for all men. Especially for other believers like the author of Hebrews with a diligence that could be described as in Acts 12, that straining and agonizing. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Wow, if, if so much of the things that generate our prayers are our indecisions and our anxieties and our difficulties, etc., what happens when we are rejoicing in all things? Is it possible that the subject and focus of our prayers begins to change? And is that what Paul is meaning when he says, rejoice always first and pray without ceasing? In everything giving thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And as I think about that, as I think about, wow, praying without ceasing, does that mean that we are trying to take as much time as possible to halt from all of our other activities and, and get away to the, the prayer closet or you know, in that corner of the room or whatever it is and, and pray with our eyes closed? Is, is that what it's saying? What Paul is saying and when he says pray without ceasing is that we have a spirit of dependence that permeates everything that we do an outlook upon life that is one of gratitude, rejoicing on all things, but because we know God is in control. And it is an ordering of the, our mental lives, our worldviews, our priorities in such a way that on one level, yes, we are making decisions, we are having conversations, we are living life. But on another level, we are in an unceasing state of adoration and worship and gratitude and prayer. And that turns our normal definition of prayer upside down. It's not so much about that set time of day that you've been praying. Every, every night before you go to sleep. Because when, when we think of prayer that way, we think of it as that thing that we schedule. That, that time of conversation with God that we plan and, and we put on our internal calendar. And when we say, in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of the prayers, many of us are, are actually saying that with a sense of finality and closure until next time on my schedule, which is next, tomorrow night. But I'm going to try not to fall asleep next time in the middle of my praying, right? And that's not what Paul is meaning by pray without ceasing. He means that if and when you are saying amen, you're concluding a thought, yes. And perhaps concluding that really focused conversation with God. But on a deeper level, you're still living and thinking and 
meditating upon the things of God. You're still deciding things based upon his principles. You're still living life in the presence and in the face of God, quorum Deo, not as if everything around you is just the product of work, sleep, and eat. It's a big difference, isn't it? It's a difference between looking at life as working, sleeping, and eating punctuated by moments of prayer versus a life of prayer punctuated by moments of eating, sleeping, and working. R.A. Torrey once wrote, The day when I came to realize what real prayer meant, realized that prayer was having an audience with God, actually having my words through the intercession of the Spirit and Christ heard, at the throne of God, when I really comprehended that, the realization of that fact transformed my life, he writes. Before that, prayer had been a duty, sometimes a bothersome duty. But from that time on, prayer is not merely a duty, but a privilege, one of the most highly esteemed privileges of my life. Before that, the thought that I had was, how much time must I spend in prayer? Am I being holy enough by, by praying a long enough prayer? And then you know what he's going to conclude. He's going to say, how much time may I spend in prayer without neglecting the other privileges and duties of life? And I, obviously, as we read that quote, I think Tori is talking about that type of prayer that I mentioned earlier, which is that formal, more set-side time of conversation with God where we stop everything, close our eyes, and pray. But, but I like what he says about recognizing what prayer is doing. God is listening. We're going to spend eternity worshiping God. That should be exciting us, and it should excite us that our God listens, that the creator of the universe delights to hear the prayers of his people, especially when we intercede on behalf of all men. So how often should you pray? All the time. Without ceasing. When you step out of the house in the morning and feel the cool breeze on your face and look at that blue sky, not right now, I know it's gray, but blue sky, when it comes back, you should be thanking God for what He's made. When you see the gray sky, you should be thanking God for His mighty power and praying for the people that are affected by the fires. When you finish a productive day, you should be thanking Him for the opportunity that you have to spend your hours trying to live for Him and to bless your employer. And while you're working, you should be looking for opportunities to share the gospel, praying for your employer and your co-workers. And guess what? The more you start living in that type of mindset, the more you're rejoicing always as you go through life, I'll bet the less grumpy you are. I'll bet the less self-centered you are. I'll bet the more outward-focused you are and the more kingdom-focused you are and the more long-term vision you are. There was a second question I wanted to address, and that is how effective are our prayers with regard to specific things? The author in verse 19 of Hebrews 13 implies that the Hebrews praying for him might lead to his being restored sooner. And hopefully you're still in Acts 12. Look at the description of that final night in verse 6. 
says, when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up. Okay, so Peter's really cast his cares upon the Lord. He is dead asleep. He's struck on the side, but he's not fully awake. How do I know? Because we read the rest of it. The angel says, Arise quickly. Chains fell off his hands and said to him, Gird yourself, tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment, follow me. Angels having to give him all the directions for you know, getting dressed like you are with a, a, a boy that's fallen asleep at night as you've made the long travel uh, to your destination. And, and they're half-lidded and you're going, Okay, put on your shoe, left shoe, one at a, yes, right shoe. Okay, walk forward. And it says that, verse 9, Peter went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. In other words, he's not fully awake yet. You've experienced times like that, I'm sure. And it wasn't until they had walked the length of one street that according to verse 11, Peter came to himself, which means, I just walked out of prison. I just, I was miraculously released past four squads of soldiers, having been chained up on either side of me with two guards, and an iron gate opened of its own accord. And at that point, after it had gone down one street, that the angel departed from him. Right? And we get the picture. We get the picture of weary frightened Christians, the church, called upon to pray for Peter, themselves calling upon a a power that is greater than Herod, the legions of Rome barring and locking a door, chaining with chains and lock and key this person so that he cannot escape And yet, all it took was one of God's messengers, one angel to liberate this captive. And Peter is reacquainted with the persecuted church. And also, the people are reacquainted with the nature of her strength. God is amazing. That's what they learned that night. They knew it already. But God is amazing. No matter how desperate life appears, God is present, ministering to our needs according to His plan, according to His timing and purpose. And that is the world that God wants you to live in. God wants you to live in a prayer world that is not ceasing, but isn't just about, you know, meditating. It is great, as I said, to meditate upon what God is doing and has done. But I tell you what, there is a temptation for us even in that to make God distant. Thank you, Lord, for having created the universe wherever you are. Thank you, Lord, for blessing me with this as if you are still guiding my every step, as if you aren't still giving me the ability to breathe every moment of my life, right? 
God wants you to live in a world in which He is amazing. And the degree to which you think that your world consists of just your family and your job and your home and your work and the various things that we put on our calendars is the degree to which we will have trouble with that aspect of prayer. Some of you may remember when we studied the book of Revelation, the powerful and moving description of all of heaven poised in silence. Wasn't that an amazing chapter? Here we had all of these profound descriptions of the grandeur of heaven, the throne of God, the angels ministering before him, all the saints, everything going on, the flashes of thunder and lightning. And all of a sudden, in all of heaven was silent. Why? You expect in the next sentence, if you didn't already kind of read ahead with your eyes or know the story, you would expect, and God got up from his throne. And he walked amidst the saints and the angels, and all of heaven was silent. That's what you would expect. And all of heaven was silent to hear the prayers of the saints. That is the world God wants you to live in. Heaven listens to the prayers of his saints. It helps remind me of my priorities. I must love the Lord my God with all my soul, my strength, all my mind. Everything that I'm doing must be centered upon His glory and His kingdom. And it helps me realize why in James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's because our priorities are so often wrong. We are so often narrow and self-focused. James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Rip yourself away from those types of priorities and that perspective. He says, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's really either or. It's not both and when it comes to the world and God. And so he concludes, or do you think that the Scripture says in vain? We always, I don't know why we end that quote before this part. But James says, do you not, or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? And what James is saying is that the Spirit yearns jealously that you should be separated from your fixation with the world and to become focused upon God. Romans 8 talks about Him groaning within us that we should be freed from that focus. Ready He is to translate our prayers to the Lord. And James finishes with, but God gives more grace. Again, we serve an amazing God that even when we get our priorities wrong, even if we come out of a time like this this afternoon, we go, wow, I have been so often praying for the wrong things. I have been so focused on myself and my needs in my world. I don't have a view of God. I don't have, I don't been praying for anybody else. But guess what? The Spirit has been yearning jealously in you 
that you should be freed from your fixation in the world and that you should be praying for the better things. And God gives more grace. God gives more grace. As James Boyce, James Boyce once wrote, nothing in the Christian life is easy. Why should we assume prayer is any different? It's a simple but profound statement. Sanctification is a lifelong process, and prayer is part of that sanctification. We all have areas to grow in, in this particular area. And so what I am thankful for is that a God that we serve is a God of more grace. But he is calling us today. Listen to me. Focus upon me. Pray for all men. And all the things that we talked about today. May that be the subject and focus of your prayers as we move forward in the coming days. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are an amazing and holy God. And as we read about people like Job and Elijah, we see ourselves in the temptations to be sorry feeling sorry for ourselves. As we read about Peter, we admire the fact that he was able to sleep in the midst of such a a treacherous and difficult night. As we read about the church praying, agonizing for Peter, we are convicted by how infrequently we lift up the burdens and needs of our brothers and sisters. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be effective instruments of your kingdom, that we would be a people of of prayer for all men. We do desire to live peaceable and godly lives so that we may proclaim your gospel. And with that desire, I know that you are well pleased. And so I thank you for that. I thank you for salvation in Christ And I pray that you would go with us. In Jesus' name, amen.